0: (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Larry Fessenden is an American director, producer, writer, actor, and overall force to be reckoned with a true indie film pioneer in the horror world, Larry's career highlights include 1995's gritty vampire drama Habit, 2001's Wendigo, and The Last Winter starring Ron Perlman. Larry's latest movie, Depraved, is a gritty and modern take on Frankenstein, with a number of very interesting questions posed about the ethics of scientific advancements in medicine. Larry's also a very accomplished producer, but beyond that, Larry is one of those rare, gentlemen. In the industry, who really goes to great lengths to give new directors a head start. Quite a few notable directors have bloomed under Larry's guidance, including Jim Mickle and Ty West. Today, his company Glass Eye Pictures continues to put out uniquely voiced genre films that rock the independent horror world to its core. Larry's a fellow native born New Yorker, and I really had a wonderful time speaking to him. So, without further ado, here's the great Larry Fessenden. How is everything? Everything's cool.
1: Good, good. And, um, we're here in at the IFC building. I know, it's exciting. I feel in a special room.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty little pink room. It's very <laughs> moody. I feel like we're in a yeah. sunset right now. Yeah, or a Kubrick film. I don't know which. <laughs> yes, yes. I feel like we're being thrust into a scene it's out of a, uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. It's true. With these chairs, it's good stuff. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So you're a, you're a fellow native New Yorker. Yep. Born and raised here. So how did New York contribute to your film education? I mean, you grew up during a time where there's a lot of great cinema coming out of New York. How did that shape you as a uh, filmmaker? Oh, it's a great question. Because, you know, when I was young, which is to say, you know,
1: 12 or 13, I was going to the rep houses. They played a lot of old movies uh, regularly. There was the Mm -hmm. Thalia. There was the Metro. There was... uh, um, double features unspooling all over the town and you could go and uh, immerse yourself in uh, the cinema of the old days like a Cary Grant double feature or recent releases like Little Big Man with Dustin Hoffman I saw that at a cinema village so uh, it was great and then the city itself always spoke to me as a Mm -hmm. place where you can become anonymous there was a great grit to it in the 70s a certain danger factor but I also loved uh, Central Park I mean it's just a fantastic city i think that's why people are snooty if they came from new york because they just had this rich experience growing up cbgb's was downtown you could ride the subways
0: and just the whole thing i miss cbgb's i grew up going there i got kicked out of there when i was really young at one point my friends and i we tried to bring sneak beer in there but we were so stupid we brought 40 ounces in there which they don't serve at the bar we got booted out of there at 17 yeah yeah
1: (laughs) i knew hilly you know we played at cb's ourselves me and my band and uh Saw some great acts there. Yeah, I mean, it's just a whole culture that is definitely dissipated, Yeah, um, but there's still pockets of it. And I have very strong memories uh, in the early 80s growing up with the performance art scene, the music scene downtown. I moved downtown to uh, the East Village, and it was mm-hmm. just bubbling up and
0: riots. and <laughs> Must have been a hell of a time to be in New York. It was a crazy time, yeah. Very cool. Well, speaking of CBGB, so punk rock is a big part of the way you seem to approach films from everything. From every interview I've read from you, punk rock inevitably comes up in terms of how you approach the filmmaking process and editing process, but it's also a big part of your upbringing. Could you talk about what punk rock means to you and how you extend the ethos of punk rock into filmmaking.
1: Well, yeah, and I don't claim to be like a punk aficionado. I grew up on the Clash and the Sex Pistols, but I also like, you know, uh, Simon and Garfunkel. So, uh, as far as musical taste, uh, you know, give me Miles Davis and Charlie Parker, uh, Louis Armstrong. So, uh, but punk as a, a do it yourself aesthetic and uh sticking it to the man, uh those are the things I think that uh, why i might drop the term uh, Mm -hmm. in interviews of course also we made the ranger recently so it was very particularly relevant um but i really believe in um in working outside the system uh if the system won't have you make Mm -hmm. no mistake i'd be happy to make a large film with uh hollywood execs but until that time you gotta still stand up for uh uh, the art and make the art with your, uh, with your own hands and uh, right. get in there and build your own community. You know, very much that punk aesthetic of like mm-hmm. uh, doing it yourself and uh,
0: having a strong engagement with the community. Right, right. No, that makes a lot of sense, particularly from a filmmaking perspective, particularly now in the age that we're in right now. I mean, it seems like with things like video on demand and just the cinematic abundance that a lot of streaming platforms have brought, it's a double-edged sword, but... uh, a lot of people can get movies out where in the past, they probably wouldn't, they'd be dependent on a studio and they would rely on a theatrical distribution, whereas they don't anymore. And that seems to enable a lot of aspiring filmmakers to be able to get their movies out. But it also floods the market with a lot of projects that are not so great, but what is your take on the current age of uh, where we are in terms of cinema and the context of streaming and, and all of that? Well, uh,
1: when I was coming up and uh, started Producing movies and, and um, sort of enabling other filmmakers as well as my own work. You know, there was this uh, DVD, TV. Uh, foreign. There were different marketplaces. So you could Mm -hmm. sort of imagine getting your money back from a film, even a small film. There was also self-distribution in theaters that had a little more oomph because Mm. people went to the theaters. Uh, Now with streaming, what you always find, I think no matter what the age, is there's still going to be gatekeepers. Like Netflix does not take every movie. And uh, they don't even uh, have a lot of my films. Um, And then Shudder used to have a lot of glass eye picks movies, but then actually Shutter grew up too. So mm-hmm. the point is, is that there, you're still dealing, and then, needless to say, festivals extremely competitive there's a gazillion movies made so uh, it's the same relationship you have of being sort of outside the shop looking in at the candy inside and right. feeling like you can't quite get your hands on it and that's why i always say uh you've got to have a plan b which has to be building your own community your own reputation um obviously now with youtube and uh streaming with uh, websites and the internet you you can access people um and and make them aware of what you have to offer. And Mm -hmm. in the end, um, though I think they're great artists who are overlooked because I've always had an affection for the suffering artist. uh, At the same time, I do think uh, there are ways to get discovered and get your material out there. Yeah.
0: So one thing I thought that was really interesting that you said about horror is that people who are making horror are the few people who are actually facing reality. Horror as a genre <laughs> is unflinching when it comes to reality. I mean, it just it seems to channel our our angst as a nation and cultural angst, it's the first genre to do that. And it does so in a very raw, visceral way. And I mean, to that extent, I mean, horror has always been known as kind of a gutter genre, you know, it's in, it's in the back with the porn, as you'd said, (laughs) (laughs) but since it so unflinchingly faces reality, it's a genre that really matters. I mean, it's, it's above and beyond a gutter genre. What is your take on all of that? Uh, Without a doubt. I
1: appreciate that thought because, uh, I mean, that's why horror is a perennial. Every generation has touchstone horror movies yeah. that are speaking to their concerns. You know, we had a lot of torture porn, uh, mm-hmm. as it was called, um, say what you want, but movies like Saw and Hostel, And uh, that was when we were uh, in Iraq and there was right. sort of a, a sense of guilt and like we were being accused of being torturers. I mean, it's really interesting to see... Um, the zeitgeist of the times reflected in the horror movies. Of course, you know, when birth control came, uh, you have sort of hippies run wild. That's what Texas chainsaw massacre, right. you know, chopping up the hippies. Rosemary's baby was also a response to, uh, evil children. And, um, obviously Godzilla was a response to the bomb and all the way back yeah. to Frankenstein. And, uh, uh, all these are movies that speak to the anxieties and fears of the, of the nation so yeah they're the truth tellers and yeah. you know people especially in america we deny death there's a sort of a fear of facing that fundamental reality and it's sort of brushed under the rug and our greatest filmmakers like um or our our mainstream filmmakers even spielberg always puts a spin on the end of his films to sort of have a little bit of a happy ending a mm-hmm. soft landing right um and i think har um though he's a great craftsman of fear uh you can't. Uh, I think America is in denial, and that's going to get you into a lot of trouble. So, Har is there to uh, like punk rock, mm. to scream at the uh, at the kids and say, you know get Real, the man is not your friend. (laughs) How's that for some old fashioned talk? (laughs) Oh, yeah, no, I think it's what the kids need to hear these days. Yeah, kids, come
0: on, get off of your phones and let's get real. (laughs) Yeah, well, speaking of Frankenstein, definitely want to get into talking about depraved. Uh, really, really enjoyed it a lot. I was one of the lucky. Few who got to see it at Overlook relatively early. New Orleans. Yep, yep. Yeah, got first cool. time in New Orleans, which was fantastic. But uh, me yeah. too. Yeah, I think I, your movie was the first one I saw at oh, nice. uh, at Overlook. Yeah, it was a great way to kick things off. But really, very interesting retelling, obviously, of the Mary Shelley Frankenstein mythos.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm curious as to what you felt either hadn't been said in that in that regard, or what um, what kind of What what prompted you to want to to do a Frankenstein movie? Because what I thought was interesting about it, which seems to be a common thread in a lot of your films, is you take mythology that we know really well, but you put a very raw, gritty, very grounded, humanity-focused spin on it you know, in a way that doesn't get too lost in the mythology. The Characters have a lot of pathos to them and it, there's something very human about it, but you don't, you don't dwell too much in in either melancholy or melodrama. It's like, it's, 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 there's a real emotional poignancy to it. So I'm curious how, uh, what made you want to do a Frankenstein movie and, and what well, inspired it?
1: I always loved the creature and I love the makeup, the Karloff makeup from the James Whale well film, 1931 just uh, is so iconic. um It evokes both pity and fear, which is a pretty cool line to uh, tread. Um, I feel like what I like to do with these horror tropes is sort of personalize them and say, Mm -hmm. well, what if it was real? And like, how would the Frankenstein story unfold in the modern vernacular? And so I conceived of the Doctor being... um, in the endless wars of the middle east and he learns really his chops uh how to bring people back to life or some kind of medical prowess that he has and he comes back you know with ptsd and haunted by uh wartime memories and just wants to sort of make right of of the mess that was over there yeah um a so-called unjust war Um, And so what would he do? Well, he'd hold up in a lab and he'd get some money from a friend and he'd uh, figure out how to get some body parts and maybe he'd try to uh, beat death in the lab. But the true impetus was to um, personalize the story and say, what is the experience of the creature? Hmm. Uh, And so I feel like what I tried to bring to the story was uh, maybe one of uh, the few movies that tell it from the creature's point of view. I mean, you'd wake up in this body and you'd go, what the hell's going on? You know, there's a Polanski film called The Tenant* where he says, uh, if I cut off my arm, I say it's me and my arm. If I cut off my leg, it's me and my leg. If I cut off my head, is it me and my body or me and my head? Hmm. In other words, where does your sense of self exist? And in the Frankenstein story is it the brain or is it the body that is carrying the brain around? So, um, you know, those are just some of the questions that are, uh, they're already in the story, but you kind of, if you come at the material with sort of fresh eyes, you realize, Oh wow, that's so crazy. Like you'd be a brain, you'd have this weird body that you didn't recognize. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't know the face in the mirror, but you'd still have the memories. Right. So that kind of conceit, I just marinated on it. and um, and then I just kind of built the story. It's not like I was referencing the book and going back and riffing right. through the pages. I know the book, I know the movies, and I was just riffing on uh, the the setup that Mary Shelley and James Whale had presented.
0: Yeah. That's great. Yeah, the bu- the book is one of my favorite books and the yeah, the Karloff movie doesn't quite scratch the surface of what, what happens in the Shelley book where the it's it really focuses on the the creature and, and you really empathize with them in a huge way. Absolutely. And the De Niro movie tried. Yeah. Which I loved. Nobody liked the De Niro movie, but I like thought it. it was great. Yeah. I I enjoyed it a lot. It had tongue tongue in cheek element to it, but it's a good double feature with coppola's dracula oh absolutely i love the dracula and that has flaws too which is
1: fine i mean there's so much of it that's truly glorious and mm-hmm. uh cinematic and uh some of the acting of course gary ullman is is a revelation i love oh, yeah. that there are different versions of the monster that's something i i cherish um and then the uh, the kenneth Branagh movie uh Bobby D I mean he's was my favorite actor for decades so it was pretty special that my two worlds came together that's cool um uh and yeah you're absolutely right it has it has some stature it's a little goofier because it feels like it a little got out of Kenneth's hands but right. uh, but it's it's a pleasure and I can watch it anytime and you know the whole way they deal with the bride is really interesting mm-hmm. uh that it's Is it Elizabeth? I mean, there's something, they play a little with the story there, and it becomes actually more terrifying. Yeah. Uh, So I I think it's a, a good effort.
0: Yeah, I was a big fan of it. But in, uh, in Depraved, you dealt with themes of PTSD, which I thought was really interesting. Mm-hmm. And this kind of seemed like there was some symbolic notion of cellular memory and being yep. abroad, and then the trauma that comes with, uh, let's just say physiological being right. torn apart, and mm-hmm. the, the the kind of similar parallel element of that, and the doctor who deals with PTSD. So yeah, I'm curious how the theme of PTSD found its way into Depraved.
1: Well, as I say, I wrote it um, in the mid two thousands I sort of started circling around the the story. Of mm-hmm. course, I've been thinking about it on and off um, before then, but uh, just because I liked the idea of like how would you update uh, all these stories yeah. um, that that I love so uh, but at the time we were in the Iraq war in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and, uh, responding to nine eleven and just generally over there and uh, I was wondering. Like what a doctor would have to deal with, and uh, I feel that uh, the soldiers come back after these wars that uh, don't have a definitive mission and don't have a beginning and a middle and an end. We're mm. fighting a terrorist entity that uh, it you can't really say well they've surrendered. So there was there's a mellifluousness to it that made it very hard to come back and be welcomed. Um, and sort of a job well done. So I think there's an a, um, an unfinished business aspect mm-hmm. that would haunt you, and I think that's what does happen to our soldiers. Um, so you know, I'm thinking about the reality, like yeah. you were saying, the the actual realities of the of uh, the military experience, and thinking about how that would play into a fiction story, right. and, and how the fiction story is sitting there waiting to. To receive this very real content, real real problems. Also, it's funny because it's not directly, but there's a lot of head trauma in the um, Iraq wars because of the um, the bombs on the roadside, and people right. would get their head jostled. And because medicine is so sophisticated, they can come back; they're alive, but they uh, they've had their brain mm. rattled, and so they have real problems. These are the modern soldiers I'm saying, and right. uh, and somehow that seemed. To fit into the soup of the whole idea of the brain and all these themes that you see in Frankenstein. Because yeah. James Will, that film is where the whole idea of the criminal brain discovered in the laboratory by Hunchback Man, <laughs> uh, all of that was introduced and has become part of the mythology. I assure right. you, Mary Shelley did not come up with that crap. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs>
0: So as a producer, you're kind of like a Roger Corman figure in how you're birthing a lot of really, really great other directors like Jim Mickle and Ty West. So what do you, what is the kind of Larry Fessenden school of filmmaking? What do you think that you're, you're giving these directors that's enabling them later down the line? Uh, Really just a
1: sense of genuine enthusiasm for the craft and the problem solving that that film is, and uh, and the minutiae of the effect of a wide shot versus a close-up, uh, why a dolly shot is essential even though we can't afford it. Uh, what can you do to get a crane shot uh, since we can't afford that? Uh, well, I know a guy down the road with a cherry picker, and uh, maybe on Saturday we can use him. I mean, I love just the practical reality of making movies outside, uh, well, with, with a smaller budget when you have to be creative and uh solve problems sort of more like in the real world as mm-hmm. if you're uh, building a, a shed to uh in the backyard and um you know i believe very passionately in the language of cinema so it's not for one moment do you compromise you see just because you don't have the money you figure out how to get the image that tells the story the way you want to tell it all right without uh, maybe all the resources and bells and whistles well do you really need a steady cam? You know what's wrong with being a good handheld uh, right. operator. Now, steady cam has its own language and so if the guy says, "No, no, I want that floating feeling." Then you go, "Okay, as long as it's not indulgent." Mm. So, uh, I just uh, I found myself hooking up with various like-minded people who were early in their career so they understood no budget, they understood mm-hmm. the sacrifice of caring is your greatest currency. Mm. Uh and so um we were able to make early films. Now, all of them have graduated and become hotshots, and right. now they have the budgets and the cranes, and that's great. And you can see the work is still good. And uh, I'm proud to have been sort of their training ground. I really yeah. like working with people who are still hungry enough that they, um, they'll they work for very little. Now, all of this implies that I don't want uh, the tools of cinema, and that's not true. I mean, I, I love... Uh, all the options and the equipment that you can use. I love uh, cleaning up your movie with CGI where it's needed. So there's nothing I'm opposed to, Mm -hmm. but I also believe you can tell great visceral stories and embrace uh, the, the lack of funds and turn that into your asset.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it works for horror particularly Absolutely. well. And the best, most quintessential examples, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. But when you have a stripped down lo-fi aesthetic, it serves horror so well because it palpably it's more visceral because it looks like it's like, like somebody rec- looked, like Texas Chainsaw looked like it was done with a camcorder. And yeah. that makes it hit so much harder. But I feel like a lot of what you're saying speaks to the importance of resourcefulness as an independent filmmaker and I didn't go to film school, but from everything I've heard about film school, they don't really teach you resourcefulness, so to speak. So how did, where did you get this ethic of resourcefulness and how do you teach it? The directors that you produce? Well, the directors come to me because
1: they th- sort of see what we've done. And, yeah. and, and then, you know, I can, um, I can sense uh, simpatico or not. I mean, what I find is that um, a lot of the, kids that come out of the schools, they're sort of aware of contracts and they're aware of the professionalism. But um, I remember we were auditioning crew members for a movie and the conversation was never about what their skills were and how they loved the cinema. It was about the contracts and the hours. And I just felt mm. this is a bad direction and that seems to be what they're teaching at the at some of these schools. I'm not gonna name names, but. Yeah. Uh, um, So, I mean, you know, obviously these uh, people need professional skills so they can make their way in this business. It's a business after all. And I don't resent that, but I don't also want to lead with that. And you have to be making, um, the first thing you're doing is you're making art. You're trying to contribute to the culture and have ideas out there. Otherwise, I don't really see the point. I mean, you can get into the industry and and make a living wage sewing costumes or... um, all the way up to directing, of course. But I'm certainly trying to find people who really have a singular vision. They want to advance uh, ideas yeah. and and advance the, uh, the the language of film and, and do something special that will resonate and then be memorable. And, yeah. you know, even Ty West's early film, The Roost, I mean, these are cool movies. You can see craftsmanship in play. Mm-hmm. And that just excites me. That's what I'm interested in. Other people can create a vocational school and that's that's fine too
0: right right (laughs) but you're looking for people who are you're looking for that palpable passion not people who are looking at hours and saying well you're gonna have to pay me overtime if we do this yeah but the people are like yeah let's work all night because we're making art and you know the the other side of the bargain is that as a
1: producer i don't abuse people i work a 12 hour day 10 hour day whatever it is um that's my side of the bargain Mm -hmm. and that's important too and if i do mentor producers it's rarely talked about cuz it's not as glamorous but the fact is is that uh I work with a lot of great producers uh Brent Kunkel Peter Polk, Jen Wexler they all came up to Glass Eye and mm-hmm. you know they it was uh, often a lark but they learned you know the paperwork right. and the aesthetic that uh that you recycle on set that you uh, don't endanger people mm-hmm. uh, that you treat people with respect and you get the most out of everybody because they feel they're part of a a family or a cohesive group. Yeah. And so there's a whole aesthetic of living and working that is beyond uh, the filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It's about how a society should be built. Not to get lofty too quick, but this is the point. You know, yeah. It's just movies after all. As Hitchcock would say, it's <laughs> only a movie. <laughs> uh, so uh, you have to be also living in the journey. It's not just the the destination so in the journey you treat people well and you build um you know people have dignity no matter what they're uh i was saying earlier that the the pas on the last film i made were just fantastic i mean they were essential they were they were the foot soldiers and they were making the movie happen so the rest of the people the lofty big idea people could uh, (laughs) you know have the space to
0: do their work so wow it's all um It's about community and respect, I think. That's huge. It's really huge. Yeah. And you seem to revel in working with first time directors. And what I'm curious about is obviously first time directors having not directed before, they probably come with a lack of preconceived notions of what directing and filmmaking should be, and that's got to be refreshing. I'm sure they bring completely and totally different viewpoints that you that probably come out of left field but are really interesting. So I'm wondering, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned as a filmmaker from some of the directors that you've mentored? Well,
1: a lot of it is just you're feeding off of their passion and they do have maybe even naive sense of how things should go down and really you know the thing is to try to create the space so that their ideas and their approach can flourish while gently explaining that that's not going to work <laughs> <laughs> right i mean you know one of the classic things and i do this too is you know i'm going to shoot in order because hmm. you know and it's fun to say that's fantastic and I get it. And I think that's probably worth trying. But just so you know, if we can't shoot in order, there's other benefits because that means that your first scene isn't the first day you're on set with your crew. Right. Maybe that scene is going to stumble a little because you're finding your way. So actually sh- shooting the middle scene on the first day, it could be a good thing. So let's not, you know, you're just trying to use your experience to remind them. Uh, that actually, though I appreciate deeply your passion on this, let's remember there's another way to look at it. Right. Same with coverage. You know, they mm. may say, oh, I always wanted this shot from here. It's all part of the design of the movie. And you go, you know what? You already have the performance that you're going to use. So maybe we don't get that shot that you dreamed about, but we just move on to the next thing. So we have a little more time to do the next thing. You see? So those are things you can offer. Mm -hmm. Because you have the experience of knowing, I have a movie uh, called No Telling. I have three crane shots. They must have taken a day each shot or all cut out of the movie. (laughs) Doesn't mean you don't dream of a crane shot. But just, you know, you can offer that experience to a young filmmaker and say, this is actually what might happen. So let's not, for one thing, get depressed if you don't get something. Because there
0: may be another way to get it so it's that kind of gentle mentorship that's right acknowledging their instincts to have these ideas and ambitions but still gently guiding them towards a better way that's right and it's not even a better way it's maybe uh, a way
1: to get it done there's a funny story i'll be quick uh uh, on Stakeland we shot in two sections jim Mm -hmm. nickel it felt like we'd use three quarters of the budget to shoot half the movie i said jim we've got to Pair down on our uh, coverage we just we can't shoot from every angle because we're just losing time Mm. and uh and he came to me sometime later and he said man best advice that's so fantastic so i have in mind this scene that takes place in the town we're gonna do it in one take and i was like oh my god that's gonna be twice as complicated that's (laughs) not what i was saying so we did this very elaborate single take and it's great in the movie and we did figure out how to Sort of uh, invisible, divided up. Right. But it was funny. There's an example where you're mentoring somebody and they're not hearing you at all. Uh, but, you know, as a result, something fantastic happened and uh, so be it. That's cool. Yeah, I
0: love Stakeland. Stakeland was really, really cool. That's a great movie. Yeah, back. it's a great and, you
1: know, movie. that was uh, a perfect blend of Jim Mickle having a lot. He'd worked in the crew mm-hmm. um, of of some movies. So he had a lot of friends, f- crew members who joined him on his first outing as a director and glass eye was able to uh you know use those resources so mm-hmm. that's the thing as producers you're always trying to find uh you know where's the the path of least resistance that's going to help us make this movie like we shot the first half of Mickle's movie on his father's uh farm oh, cool. so you know very often we'll shoot stuff at my farm but that's not always possible and mm-hmm. so here was another example so you that's how you make low-budget films. You use those opportunities, right?
0: Like Robert Rodriguez says, structure a film around what you have immediate access to, which Absolutely. is what he did with El Mariachi, and, oh, and Kevin Smith did that with Clerks. Yeah, yep. Release That's horror. how you do it. So, as a uh, as a father, I'm curious as to what your son's film education looked like when you were exposing him to movies and how what movies you chose for him and and also his filmmaking education. Well. I showed him all of
1: Hitchcock when he was like 10 years old. So, (laughs) and we'd watch them, and I'd say, Look how he shot that scene. Do you realize that you don't even see that the house is, uh, that the the factory is burning? He just shows a wall and then he shows the smoke coming through. And I said, You know, he's saving a lot of money. He didn't need to show the factory burning. So, uh, little things like that. I, I was not trying to train my kid to be a filmmaker, I was trying to train him to see the language of film unfolding and how choices, uh, affect your experience. Yeah. So we watched, uh, you know, Miyazaki and Pixar. And, um, I mean, it's not like there was some training ground, but uh, at the same time, we watched all the Hitchcocks right? because Hitchcock is so you can really, uh, see his, his design. Mm -hmm. Um, and therefore it's fun to talk about a Hitchcock movie and also they're entertaining. Yeah. Um, and, uh, my kid was watching the Harry Potter films as they came out which is a great privilege and and he was watching Lord of the Rings so you know just a regular kid but yeah. but the thing that was cool is that the way we presented movies in our household they were never a babysitter it was never like you know uh, daddy has to go do something important so here mm. you just put a video in no it was it was like and now we're going to watch this movie. And he would always be there. And he'd watch all the way to the end of the credits while his friends were like drooling in the corner and playing with blocks, you know. Right. So in that sense, I think we taught him just some reverence. And yeah. I also, he saw all the 70s movies that I loved, you know, when he was like, by the time he was 15. In fact, now he's like, I've already seen Marathon Man, but I'll look at it again and, you know, mm-hmm. have a new experience. So maybe I pushed the... Uh, pushed everything a little too fast but that was my excitement and and he really got it. He liked movies like Straight Time or just unexpected good films from the olden times. Also, he was never afraid of black and white because that was mixed right in, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, Cary Grant, Fred Astaire, you know, Miss Marple, all kinds of stuff. The thing was to have a sense of uh, treating film as as an experience and not as a... uh, a babysitter yeah i have that in depraved i have the doctor kind of getting bored of his uh task as being a father and eventually just gives the monster a a tablet and says you know and you can watch this you know i'm not scolding people who are overworked and have to do something with their kids but uh to me it's a disservice to the medium let alone the kid
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's really cool and then your son jack went on to direct a movie and he was 16 years old yes what did that how how do you direct a movie when you're in in high school well he made like four shorts and they
1: were all too long uh (laughs) for uh and they're cool one the first one is a zombie movie which i love and it's really about two kids who are you know in the in the afterworld uh, and the zombies are around, but they're just bickering about what kind of soda they like. And, you know, <laughs> so it's, once again, it's sort of taking the naturalism mm-hmm. of everyday life, but there's something very, very big out there that, yeah. that they have to deal with. So, you know, I love this approach and it's a cool movie and it played at the Woodstock Film Festival, but it was half an hour long. Um, and then he made another couple of movies. They're always about friendships that are trying to find their way and um his mother said well for christ's sake you keep making these half hour movies you might as well make a feature because no one's going to accept a half hour short right and of course like you know a week later he came to us and he says well i have the feature (laughs) and we're like oh my god so that's really how it began and then i read the script and i was very taken with it and you know beck underwood who's my wife and his mother you know she was um she, she really felt that there needed to be more work. So they worked on the script and I, you know, oversaw like any producer. And then we discussed the shots and I made him shot list the entire movie because mm-hmm. I said, you know, whether you start with a close up or a wide shot is is the choice of the scene. And so I mentored him. And we had enough reference to other movies that he could understand that these were important choices and that's how a story gets told. And so we built the film and then my wife found the car. We shot it at my friend's uh, trailer. So you see, it was that Rodriguez idea Yep, these are all things we have. So yeah. we made it for, I don't know, 50 grand, 60 grand. Nice. Um, we had real actors who I had to pay through SAG. So there were certain expenses, but otherwise we all lived in the house and, um, and it was, I think, very magical for everybody. Because this is the sweet spot. It's hard to hit, mm-hmm. actually, with most directors. But it was such a family affair. Yeah, My wife was an art director. Um, it really was like, okay, let's go put on a show. And we're going to drive to Annie's house. And we're going to get in the trailer and um, so cool. make the movie. And and the actors I'd worked with before, so we were all pals. And yeah, it was truly handcrafted. And you know, a lot of friends are like, you know, oh, you made Jack's movie for him. Well, actually, he was <laughs> boss. He's a much tougher director than me. <laughs> I'm very uh, sappy and always listening to people's opinions, but he's very determined. He's an only child, so he's just a right. little spoiled kid. Uh, he told everybody what's what, and I was the DP, so I knew I was very protective of the th- choices we had made uh, when he designed the movie. Yep. I would ask him questions. Why would you start that way? And he'd explain why. And I go, fantastic. And then I was able to protect that vision mm-hmm. and, and do what he had said. Yeah. He made choice. And what's cool is he became a man. He became a filmmaker when he took the camera because mm. he's in the movie, okay. but there's some scenes where he's not in it. And that's when he took the camera. And he always says, that's when he became a filmmaker. Interesting. He got to change the focus himself, right. choose the lens, choose the moves. And, uh, I think that's where he actually got the bug. Up that's till cool. there, he was sort of on some weird ride. You know, this is something we did as uh, father and son. Is you know, you run around and in your Lord of the Rings costume and I'll film and yeah. you'll see, we'll edit it and it'll right. be a movie. But now he actually was making it himself and he really felt the difference.
0: Wow, what a film school. Yeah, it's true. And now we made another one.
1: But he was always on film sets and working with the art department, my uh, wife. And so he's seen it all. That's great. That's really great. Yeah. It's lucky. That's a privilege. Yeah. But, you know. but, and yet it's not Hollywood. So it's not like he goes and sees his father being a big shot. He's literally seeing us like we're d- yeah. down building the props for, glenn's movie or something right. you know he learns
0: the every ounce of the craft of it uh, that exactly way. yeah that's great yeah cool so last last few questions what are you working on now and next uh
1: well i'm, I'm tucking depraved into bed you know i gotta do the making ofs and just tend to all that mm-hmm. and then i shot my son's second film this uh summer it was a very very ambitious very fast and quite exhausting so that was uh, brutal and uh now of course i'm nervous and overseeing uh, waiting for him to edit you know yeah. he's in college again so i'm like now what do you got way well, you're editing right so yeah. that's a thing to manage um and then uh, i have a couple of scripts usually i like to just and i think eventually i'm just going to choose what i really want to work on and then try to make it it takes forever yeah um but i i like we made a couple movies low budget now and i'm going to sort of stick to that it's too hard to knock on hollywood's door and try to engage a big actor i mean i would love that i'm not sure if that's in the cards for me so it's hard enough to find a very small amount of money Mm -hmm. um but i think depraved has proved that i at least know how to make films and so try to seize on a a little of that energy because it's been like six years between each film and that's Mm -hmm. not gonna work for me i'm too old i'm not gonna be around that much longer
0: gotcha (laughs) (laughs) is there uh, anything you've wanted to do either as a actor producer or director that you you haven't got a chance to do yet that you've been wanting to do well yeah be famous and make (laughs) big movies i mean what do you think
1: the answer is i mean my heroes are like scorsese and yeah Uh, not really i mean spielberg is a hero i like his filmmaking and you know but just the vast i mean marty's the best example because he really does make his religious thoughtful pictures he makes his gangster movies Mm -hmm. then he does a history film like the aviator um it's all very personal and yet he's able to jump around genres uh um and then i like that herzog makes narratives and documentaries so Mm -hmm. the real thing is the only dream that is 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 to do more yeah and yet quite honestly at the same time i'm so disgusted with humanity and the business and this culture that part of me wants to do less and make Mm. furniture which is what i really like to do (laughs) interesting so i'm very conflicted as you can see i just assume retire which would save me money somehow making movies is very costly
0: Are there any either of resources or books that were particularly formidable to you or that you recommend the the directors that you kind of raise check out? Yes, I'll tell you. I'll
1: give you three. First of all, you have to watch and then read Hitchcock Truffaut. Um, this is the greatest book on filmmaking, not because you have to like Hitchcock, but because he explains his intention in every shot and you really get to understand. And then, you know, the cool thing is he talks about every movie, Mm -hmm. everything from the casting to the art direction, of course, to the camera. And then, you know, he talks about his tricks and all his usual sort of self aggrandizement, Mm -hmm. but it's a great education and you have the pleasure of watching the movie and then you can read six or seven pages about it. Then I recommend, um, Sidney Lumet's book, uh-huh. uh, Making Movies. Lovely book by a great director, really thoughtful and um, just uh, a nice glimpse into process. Yeah. And then I might recommend In the Blink of an Eye by the editor of The Godfather and uh, the sound designer of The Godfather, um, Walter Murch. And he uh, he has so much insight as to editing. And some of these guys are, you know, old school and there's sort of more poetry involved in their mm-hmm. thinking but you know poetry is good right so he talks about my favorite thing is this if you're editing a scene and when the actor blinks that's very often where there should be an edit hmm. because the actor sort of puts a close on an idea and it's sort of an invitation to say okay that's I've, I've done that idea i'm blinking now i'm sort of resetting yeah and uh it's often a clue as to where you might want to do an edit i love that so these kind of insights mm. very strange yeah. very very helpful and a great reverence for the art of film which is yeah.
0: fun to uh, read people who care interesting yeah. great larry this is a tremendous honor thank you very yeah. much great. any uh, parting wisdom for aspiring filmmakers none at all just hang in there or find something much easier to do <laughs> <laughs> great on that note thank you again this is great certainly Thanks. thank you All right, I really loved that conversation. Larry is so awesome. So, here is a summary of key advice from this conversation with Larry Fessenden. Number one, find a cast and crew who are in it for the passion. When making independent films, the pay is low and the hours are grueling. Therefore, it's critical that you find people who want to be a part of your movie for the right reasons. The right reasons being the desire and drive to create. The people you want to work with will be more concerned about the project and their creative contributions and less concerned about their contracts, hours, and overtime. That being said the other side of this is that you cannot abuse or take advantage of them whatsoever as an indie director, You have to hold up your end of the bargain by ensuring that your cast and crew is always respected, safe, and listened to. All of these elements are what make a creative and cohesive family unit on set. The spirit of independent filmmaking thrives on perseverance, not just from the director, but from everyone around him. Find people who will willingly remain in the trenches with you and treat them like gold. Number two, embrace the punk rock ethos of filmmaking. As Larry says, work outside of the system if the system won't have you. This is largely why he embraced the DIY, do-it-yourself ethos of punk rock when he produced his films. This stresses the importance of working outside of the system and not constantly waiting around for someone to give you clearance and permission, but creatively finding a way to get the shots yourself with what you have access to. Which brings me to my next point. Number three, Embrace the challenge. Larry mentioned how the fun of making independent movies is finding a way to get the shots without having the resources. Again, this speaks to how important the quality of resourcefulness is in directors and filmmakers. This partially requires taking a mental inventory of everything you have access to whenever you face a production challenge. Larry mentioned how on one movie he needed a crane shot that he couldn't afford, but remembered that he had a neighbor with a cherry picker, so he got the shot that way. Nearly every Everyone has unexpected advantages and access to unique resources. Discover what yours are and structure your script around them. Number four, face your fears. Larry's noted for saying that horror is the only genre that unflinchingly faces reality. It's been widely documented that trendy horror genres throughout the years are effective because they serve as metaphors for current anxieties. Godzilla came from the fear of the atomic age, torture porn rose during a culture of disgust over military mistreatment of foreign POWs, etc., etc. The level of unflinching honesty that horror directors are able to achieve when confronting real fears and social anxieties is one of the reasons why horror matters so much as a genre. Larry's advice is to really confront and face your own fears and sources of unrest and channel them into your work. The more honest you are about what scares you, the more your work will resonate with people on a gut level and the more effective the horror element will be. As Larry says, denial is dangerous. The horror genre is there to remind us of reality and hard truths. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, it would mean the world to me if you could give us a positive review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if there is another director you think we should have on the show, send me a tweet or a message on Instagram at I'm Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.